I love the way the First Gen Lounge makes me feel. Because it creates a space where I belong, where we're able to create community. The fact that it's a community. It's a safe place. It also gives me a place to understand different perspectives. The stories of these individuals prescribe transformational perspective. I receive encouragement, enlightenment, empowerment. And also serve as a catalyst to just keep going. Where we're able to be our true selves. I'm allowed to be an unapologetic first gen. And above all else, tell our story. And every episode is unique. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Eve, and I'd like to welcome you to the First Gen Lounge. Well, hello, family. Hello, hello, and hello. So, again, more and more amazing people like showing up left and right. And the guy that I have with us today is like the man. We met a few months ago, so we're we're new friends, but he's been just so supportive. And I have to tell you, I went to Cornell to speak back in February. I know we talked about that actually on the leap day of this leap year. And I don't know if I would have been able to show up like I did if it had not been for Chris, because I was freaking nervous. <laughs> I was like, how am I going to do this? It's Ivy's. He was like, chill, be yourself. So Chris, my good friend. Hey, friend. Hey, Dr. Eve. It's it's always good to be with you. Oh my gosh. I, I enjoy every moment I get to connect with you and, and just share and grow and exchange. And you are just, you're a wow guy. And then y'all, he's a hugger. So I, I get hugs with Chris yep. and I like hugs. But Chris, look, I'm you know not going to keep us all day. I'm going to let you tell the people all the amazing, fun things about you and who you are and what you do. And I know you don't like talking about yourself, but you got to right now. All right. So I was born on a Thursday. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So my name is Chris Sinclair. I am the executive director of external affairs for a nonprofit organization called FLIP National. FLIP is an acronym, stands for First Generation Low Income Partnership. It is a national nonprofit organization that does advocacy work on behalf of first generation and or low income college students at colleges and universities across the country. I graduated pretty recently from the School of General Studies at Columbia University in 2018. During my time at Columbia, we founded a student, or I was a founding member of a student organization called Columbia Flip, and we were able to have some success creating change on Columbia's campus and build some nationwide and even international momentum. And we decided during that first year that we were going to try to kind of branch out and take that work beyond Columbia. And so we've graduated to sort of a chapter-based model where we currently, at this very moment in time, have 18 chapters that soon to change rather quickly, actually. But at, at this point, we have 18 chapters at different schools. We have about another 40 to 50 schools that are interested in starting chapters. So just for context, many first-gen low-income students are familiar with QuestBridge. They were founded in 1994, and they have 42 chapters. We were founded in 2015, and we have 18 chapters. So our growth has been exponential in the time that we've been doing this. I mentioned chapters. Our chapters are dedicated, student-run, first-gen student organizations. So we center Mm -hmm. student advocacy and the student voice. And that's the way that we approach this work differently from many other organizations that might do similar work. So other than that, I really don't do anything. Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Listen, that's already enough in itself. I mean, 18 chapters already? 
goodness gracious mm-hmm. how are you keeping up with this very quick change because i mean you said how many more coming soon um so we are in conversations with 40 to 50 somewhere between 40 and 50 schools they're in varying stages of development so and varying levels of engagement so mm-hmm. i obviously don't do this work alone and i want to make sure that i shout out my team at flip national we have a great team which our team is all first-gen low-income students and recent grads mm-hmm. so it's an organization built by us and built for us and so everything that we do we we have a team of people that are sort of behind the scenes doing the work and so i don't want to take complete credit for everything that we do and so it is a lot to manage Uh, we try to stay plugged in with the students we try to stay on top of things or trends that are happening in the space and we connect at conferences so you and i met in person at ibg which by the way the keynote was probably the highlight of that conference. Oh, man. So, Dr. E, knock oh, it out of the park for those who are wondering, as usual. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. So, we, we connected with students at these conferences, uh, and I've been to a, a, a bunch of them. We were actually joking amongst our team. Someone on our team, uh, this came up with, when I was talking with someone on our team that I've probably been to more first-gen conferences than anyone in the country. <laughs> because Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> yeah, so, like, there are multiple conferences that have happened multiple years and I've gone multiple times to all the different conferences that exist. So that's our main way of trying to plug in. We try to increase our social media presence. So, you know, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and we connect with first-gen student organizations that way. So yeah, it's a lot to keep track of, but you know, I have a real passion for for doing the work and, and that's something that has motivated me to try to build this organization out to the point where this can be a sustainable thing that gets institutionalized in the realm or in the field of higher education and that can be sustainable for first-gen students moving forward. Mm. I just, I'm so fascinated by the work that you do. And I've been fascinated since we connected, partly because of how I even learned about your platform, being in LT's group. And I'm like, Flip, what is this? And so I just kind of went down the rabbit hole <laughs> and I got on LinkedIn and I started finding you all. And I'm thinking, oh, holy crap, this is amazing. Again, because how you are very student-led for one, but how empowering that is for students, especially first and low income, to say, I'm here and I'm president. I'm going to be the one to make a difference for myself. I'm not going to wait for you to give me permission to do that. So even thinking about that, I'm curious to know from the undergraduate and graduate level, how do you then encourage or, you know, incite the, the thought process for students about driving change on their campuses? Well, when we talk to students at different schools, we kind of meet them where they are, first of all. So there is already the conversation happening about the support or lack of support that is happening for first-gen low-income students at different schools. Now, some schools have very supportive administrations, some schools not so much. Mm-hmm. And we really start with the student experience. So that's one of the ways that we center the student voice is we, we start from the student perspective. We don't start from what an institution says because the institution is not going to tell you, hey, we're not really supporting first-gen students all that great. They're just not going to say that. But the students, having been on the campus, having been familiar with their own experience, what's available to them, what struggles they face while being on the campus, we kind of start there. And then we kind of tap into our own story and our own history and my own narrative of being a first-gen low-income student at Columbia and all the things that we went through and people tend to identify with some of the things or if not all the things that I went through. And then we kind of tap into the fact that like, hey, you're identifying this problem. You're, you may be pushing for your administration to 
be more active in trying to solve the problem. You may think that the administration should be doing something that they're not doing or that they are doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And we kind of say, listen, it's great to identify the problem, but you need to be proactive in the solution to the problem. Mm. And that's kind of been at the root of student activism throughout the course of history. You know, student activism is how we got one of the major strategies of the civil rights movement and civil disobedience. And that started with the Greensboro Four, mm-hmm. integrating lunch counters in, in, in Greensboro. So we encourage students to say, listen, let's not rely on the institution to solve the problems, let's try to think of some solutions for things that we can build that can address the issues that colleges and universities are not addressing and then try to expand those initiatives and then partner with those universities. And let's have that be a student-led effort. And so I think a lot of students resonate with that. I think a lot of students are to varying degrees frustrated with with how decisions are made and how they're left out of those decisions. We don't want to feed into a variation of the white savior complex where people just parachute in and say, hey, this is what we think you need. I think one of the things that I find in working with the students is that one of the main frustrations is that students are not being heard Mm. in terms of how they're you know, how the things that institutions do affect them. And so that's one of the things that we try to encourage. We, we really speak with them about what their experience is, identifying the landscape, what, what is going well and not going well, and what can be done to improve it. And then that becomes the foundation of how we work with the schools that we're in touch with. Mm, I'm loving that. I love the thought process, too, with thinking about the history of student activism. Like, yeah, <laughs> Um I mean, even beyond, you know, the Greensboro Four, you have SNCC. And I know that because I went to Shaw. <laughs> um, yep. And then thinking about, there you go. what was it called? Why is my blank? My brain is drawing these blanks that is insane. Do I need a nap? What was the, the, the bus tour to the South? Come on, Eve. Help me out, Chris. The Freedom Rise. Freedom Rise. There we go. No, those were college students leading that, you know? There you go. But in all these things, it, it is very powerful to think about the voice and, and the lived experiences of college students and the power that they have. And I know that's why I've always loved being a college student and I really loved working with them because of that that place in life. You're grown up to be grown, but still not grown up to be like, you know, in trouble, trouble. <laughs> I mean, you can be, but you know, you, it's, a, yeah. it's a beautiful time for students. So another thing for you is, do your chapters vary in terms of undergraduate and graduate, or is it something that can be just a collective body? So... For the most part, our chapters are undergraduate. However, one of the things that we're finding is that in the space, there is increasing conversation about a couple of different sectors of the first-gen student population. So there's a lot of talk about alumni networks, Mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of talk of doing the same kind of work at the graduate level because being first-gen and a graduate student shows up in a different way. Mm -hmm. You don't have a lot of the same financial supports. You're having a lot of times more responsibilities. A lot of graduate students find themselves having to be TAs for undergraduate courses to make money and et cetera. And so I think one of the beauties of the fact that we haven't really, we've thought about the graduate first-gen student space, but one of the advantages of really focusing on the undergraduate level is something that you just alluded to, which is, you know, you're really being proactive in solving these problems, but you're also setting the stage for being a leader generally and coming into any space that you'll come into after you graduate 
and being able to, to identify, here's what's going on in the environment that I'm in, and here's how things can improve. You're building those skills through first-gen low-income student advocacy to be able to take this to your career field, to take this to a job that you might have, to take this to a professional school. If you get into graduate school and you are involved in first-gen low-income student advocacy as an undergraduate student, maybe you take that step and, and try to create that on the graduate level. And that becomes a pipeline of sorts to say, hey, those of you who are going into professional school, there's that avenue of being able to create that space at the graduate level. If you wanted to go into academia, if you wanted to be a professor, you can take that into public policy, into the startup field, into the research field. So you develop all of these different skills. And this is something that we kind of try to talk about in terms of the benefits of doing this work. Doing this work as a student helps you to build all kinds of marketable skills mm -hmm. that are transferable to the things that you want to do in life. And I think that's one of the things that has really given me some confidence in doing this work is that, you know, maybe if I questioned myself, maybe if I had that imposter syndrome with, or some degree of survivor's guilt of, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these great things, but I still know that a lot of first-gen students are struggling. Mm -hmm. To the extent that we have successes and we're able to make a difference in the lives of first-gen students, that affirms me in terms of my ability to achieve and do things, and that I'm able to carry that into other areas of my life. And so I think hopefully that is happening for the students that we're working with, and that will extend into graduate-level student organizations to the extent that they exist at different schools. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give you all that right now. Um, and, and a lot of it too, because you broke it down so eloquently and even thinking of the fact that, yes, the first gen experience does vary being undergrad and graduate. You're still not excused being a graduate from having first gen problems or challenges rather, but they are different. And that's part of the reason that I place so much emphasis on the first generation college graduate. I love students, love students and students can very much so benefit from mm -hmm. the platform that exists, but being out there after college kind of feel left hanging sometimes and people don't have the same grace or um, oftentimes the same understanding once you're an adult because it's kind of like as a college student we can forgive the college students you know oh they're just kids they're you know being young and dumb kind of thing but at the point of being an adult but even a grad student I still have this first-gen identity that I'm still navigating research is, is far more difficult navigating you know new academic spaces it's far more difficult. Maybe I left home to take a job now I'm working and going to school. So um, not that that's unfamiliar, but the academic rigor and goals and the professional environment, like you said, that that guilt for being successful and going off and trying to live my best life. But they used to, you know, some family that's kind of like, eh, you think you bad, don't you? <laughs> but um, <laughs> how to navigate those things are very real. So I really love the emphasis and the intentionality that you all place in the work that you do on helping students to prepare for this life, let's say knowingly or unknowingly for them, that just probably, I'm being a student leader, but it's like, I'm getting you ready for life. <laughs> and so I love, love, love that. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, and even with the work that you do, and I know it's something that is really has a place in your heart. It's the idea of why it's important for first gens to really share their narratives. Oh, absolutely. So honestly, I, I think that's probably the thing that 
is most important in terms of engaging in first-gen student support, advocacy, anything really. And it kind of ties back to a point that you were just making, which is being a first-gen student leader and doing this work as an undergraduate student does prepare you for life. When you are first-gen, in college is not the only place that you're first-gen. Mm. So you, when you go to graduate school, you're going to be a first-gen grad student. When you enter the workplace, you're going to be first-gen and in the workplace. Maybe you're entering into the corporate world, maybe into the finance space or the academic space or the medical space or the legal space. You're going to be first-gen. That identity stays with mm. you. One of the things that we used to talk about when I was still a part of Columbia Flip, and this is something that a member of Columbia Flip once said that was really funny but also insightful, which is, you know, the low-income student identity is the only identity that we hold that we're not trying to keep forever. Like, nobody wants to be low-income forever, right, right? right? You're trying to get up out of that. But everything else you really hold on to, and it it defines you. It defines you interact with the world, how you see the world, your worldview, your perception of things. And it's important for a number of reasons to to share that narrative and, and to embrace it. One is because it helps reduce the stigmatization of the identity. There is some element of, for lack of a better term, shame that some students feel about being low income. Mm -hmm. And society has kind of dictated to us that, you know, there's a correlation between your wealth and what you have materially and your value as a person. If you think about, you know, the person, the current occupant of the White House, he's always talking about how rich he is. And he says it as if that is some sort of indicator of his value as a person. And so the converse of that is, you know, if you're low income, there's a certain connotation that is associated with that. And so part of what sharing the narrative does is to to really embrace the identity and to show that, you know what, you're more than the sum total of your identities and to share your experiences. And on that note, the, the other thing, the other reason why it's important to share narrative is, you know, we're trying to really redefine how we talk about higher education in this country. We're, we're trying to redefine what the quote unquote traditional college student looks like, mm. because that definition looks very different than it did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. So it's important that these narratives and these stories and the experiences of first-gen students, first-gen graduates are shared because societally, if we are to improve society for the many rather than the few, we need to understand the realities of people's life trajectories, people's stories, people's experiences. And the more that we share those narratives, the more people can identify with them. If that's not an experience that someone identifies with, they can, they're more likely to empathize with it if they know it exists. Mm. Just to use an analogy, and it's not the greatest analogy, and, and but, you know, black people have been talking about police brutality for a long time. But it wasn't until people started pulling out cell phone cameras and getting seeing police officers shoot black people that people were saying, oh, my God, this is outrageous. How can we live in a society where this happens? Mm. And black people over here like, man, we told you about this 30 years ago. You just didn't see it. Mm. You, didn't, you chose not to believe it. Mm. But now when you share that narrative, there is more with that 
dynamic and that phenomenon that happens in black communities because people have seen it. They have the evidence there. There have been stories about it. It's made news. People are paying attention to it. And so when it happens, it's more likely to be believed. It's more likely to be empathized with. It's more likely to induce outrage and action on the part of people with whom that doesn't apply to them. So telling the first gen narrative, same principle. If we're experiencing food insecurity on campus, if we're experiencing housing insecurity on campus, if we are experiencing imposter syndrome in every facet of our lives as we move through life, even after we graduate, that is something that is not well understood because it's not talked about as much in the framework of being first gen. And so the more that we do that, the more that we're able to affect real change around that. Mm. You know, I can talk to you all the time and always about all things because you really <laughs> drove home the power of telling your story. And it's one of those thought processes in my head right now that if you want something, you got to speak up. And how often do we, in feeling sometimes inadequate or like I said, imposters or not thinking that our story really means anything to anyone, that we don't say things, right? This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm going through. This is why it matters to me. And then therefore things don't change. So thank you for that perspective and for, you know, that clarity. Because I'm pretty sure just like myself, somebody's like, huh. I do need to say something because you're in the workplace and you're struggling with something, you know, that's happening at home. Maybe it's related to your family. Like you are the caregiver for a grandmother or for an aunt, right? With your first gen and you're still navigating corporate spaces and you don't even have a mentor. That's, that's a challenge and that's an issue. But until you say, hey, I need some understanding in this space. No, I'm not being a baby, nor am I complaining. This is my reality and I need to think about accommodations because for people who have money can just put grandma in a home <laughs> you know, I try to be funny, but hey, I'm just throwing it home. Yeah. Yeah, I got the money for it. That's not the case. Or for people who are first gen and we don't come from the backgrounds where the corporate settings we're in is what we were brought up in. It may take a little adjusting. So giving some affirmation to that reality, I'm really grateful for that from you. So even as I'm thinking about all that you're doing and, you know, you even telling your story and why you, you know, are so committed to first gen low income, you know, being one too. I want to ask you about being in this nonprofit space because that's quite a beast, you know, to take on. It's, it's a lot. It's a, it is like, I mean, people think, oh, nonprofit, you know, all oh, that's easy. No, it's not. No, it is not. <laughs> and so would you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with those who are listening? And so just in all of your work, because, you know, I've definitely been a fan of your work since we've met and I continue to be and will you know, make it a commitment to be supportive of all that you're doing. But, you know, what do you say to people like, I want a nonprofit or I don't know what to do, or is this, it's easy, just fill out the papers, pay no taxes. Like, what do you say to people about nonprofit work? Yeah. So first of all, just want to reiterate what Dr. Eve just said. Nonprofit work is definitely tedious, difficult, grueling work to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think of nonprofits as like, well, you don't have to make a profit. You're not in it for making money. You're just going to do some great things. Mm -hmm. It is not quite that simple. It's not at all that simple. And so I think there are a couple things to think about in terms of the nonprofit space. We decided to go this particular route so that we could have tax exempt status so that we can do some fundraising around first gen low income student advocacy. That was our initial reason for being in the space, but we've been able to benefit and adapt our 
mission and how we carry out the mission based on everything that's available to nonprofits. But in terms of being in the nonprofit space, there does need to be some assessment of whether or not the nonprofit route is a good route because being a nonprofit organization is the exact same thing as being a business. You're starting a business to do whatever it is. You know, business, for-profit businesses are in business business to make money. They have obligations and fiduciary responsibilities to shareholders, to customers, et cetera. But when you're doing a nonprofit, you are in the space and you're running a business. But the, the point of the business is not to make money. It is to carry out some societal or social justice objective. Mm-hmm. And so... Just because you're a nonprofit and you achieve that status and you don't have to pay taxes, first of all, there's a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. and fees and things like that that you have to do. There's a lot of compliance involved with that. But you're also a business. And so you do have to make money in order to sustain a business. Mm-hmm. The difference is that the profits that you generate for, for your nonprofit don't go into your own pocket or into any one person's or shareholders or, or group of people's pocket. It is put back into further carrying out the mission of the organization. And so that's something to think about in terms of just whether or not you are going to start a nonprofit and whether or not that's going to be your vehicle of change. The other thing about the, the nonprofit sector and the philanthropic sector is that it's very old boy network, mm. for lack of a better term. There's not a lot of diversity in the space. Mm. And so I, as a black man, a cisgendered, heterosexual black man, I have privilege in some ways and other ways not so much. But when you're coming into this space, space is very white. Spaces on the older side, it's not very young. It could be, you're talking about old money in a lot of ways. You're talking about coming into a space to do what we like to call disruptive change. It might also be called radical change and uprooting systems and changing systems and, and really changing the, the roots the roots of higher education as we understand them now, but you're coming into a space where the funding for that space is thought of very differently. There are debates in the space about whether or not you should invest in administrative costs, whereas in a for-profit, you know, if you want to recruit talent for a for-profit position, mm-hmm. you do things like incentivize salary, mm-hmm. benefits, you pay people more, and then you recruit based on that. In a nonprofit space, that's frowned upon because funders don't want to fund your organization. They want to fund your impact. And so they want to see their dollars going to the substantive work that you do as an organization. But in order to do that work, you need people to run things. And so that's a challenge in the nonprofit space. And then lastly, just again, the diversity piece of just being, if you're a member of an underrepresented community, and I like to think of the first gen community as underrepresented as an identity, you're coming into a space where, you know, we're not in this, you know, people who listen to this podcast, people who are in these spaces, a lot of times we we experience that luxury of just coming into a space and not having to explain the struggle, Mm. because we all get it. Mm. And a lot of times in the nonprofit sector, you're dealing with a lot of people who don't get it. And so you have to do that added labor of explaining, getting people to understand why this is an issue. And you have to frame it in terms that they understand, which is difficult because it doesn't speak to the root issue of why this is important. But you have to kind of use different metrics to get people to understand the work that you're doing. And then we have the added burden of saying, here's our innovative approach and why this is the best approach, which is also 
not the traditional way of trying to deal with things. So the nonprofit sector is a very difficult sector to navigate. We've spoken to a, a, a number of people who have wanted to come into the space and are thinking about starting a nonprofit. And I would just caution, and I don't want to discourage anybody from doing it, but you have to do your due diligence. You have to be prepared for everything that is involved in running a nonprofit and making sure that that is the best avenue through which you can you can make that difference. And I'm the type of person that is much more inclined to encourage people to do something rather than discourage people to do something. I, I like to find reasons why things can happen, but the nonprofit is not like a be all end all solution. It's not always the best avenue and it is a lot of work. Mm. Yeah, you gave us some real good feedback there, friend. <laughs> And I, and I love that you said that because I actually have a nonprofit myself, but it's only on paper. And because at the point of getting started, I did realize early on that for what I wanted to do, I could very well be for profit and still have a very strong social component to it. And that for the flexibility that I desired, I needed to be for profit. And so in moving into a nonprofit space, even with having boards and, you know, your meetings and like I said administrative costs and fundraising, there is a lot that is there that people tend to overlook and they don't give the nonprofits, in my opinion, the credit they deserve. And I couldn't have said it better being, you know, the white spaces, being predominantly male spaces, what it looks like to get funding and secure funding. It's not as easy. Grant writing, those things that come into play that unless you can build a solid team that has a true belief in the work, there will be some challenge. Not saying that businesses aren't challenged like in for-profit worlds, but for nonprofit, there's just a different admiration that I have for those who can lead them. So thank you for sharing that with us as well, because it's really helpful for us to know. And again, to give the respect to the nonprofits that we deserve, because I don't think we do justice to nonprofits a lot of times. Like it's like, oh, it's nonprofit, but why does this person make that much money? I mean, they have to run this business. And do you know how it's business? And and that's what's that is, you know, but it's cool. So we're at a point and I'm always sad to get to the end of these interviews, but I know that they have to end, um, but we can always do it again. So if you will, yes, we can. please tell us, you know, some of your thoughts in terms of, you know, just what you want to leave us with. If you had one thought or, you know, perspective, what do you want us to know? I think the thing I, I would want to leave people with is that, you know, there's pride in being first gen. There is the struggle in being first gen. You know, there's a lot of talk in you know society about, you know, people want to come in and say, hey, we celebrated you. And I kind of liken it to it's sort of like when we have that famous person that dies and, you know, when Nipsey Hussle died. And we're like, oh, you know, rest in peace, Lipsy Hustle. I never listened to your music, but yeah, you know, we miss you and stuff like that. Like, you didn't miss me when you were gone. Kobe Bryant, same thing. Like, we all hated Kobe Bryant until he was gone. And we're like, oh, he's great. He's the GOAT and so that. And we're waiting till the end until, you know, it's it's acceptable to, to celebrate someone. And what I want to say is that, you know, being first gen, we experience a lot of that struggle and a lot of times we suffer in silence because our tendency is that we're, we're not really good at asking for help. I know that's the case for me, speaking for myself, but I want to leave people with the sentiment of wherever you are in your, in your journey, whether you're a student, whether you're a grad student, whether you're at the beginning of your career, you know, professionally, first generation students are superheroes. I, if all things being equal, I will always take someone who is first gen over anyone else. And I will go to bat with first gen students, first gen people who identify as first gen. And I know I will come out on top 
almost every time, if not every time. And I want people to to celebrate the fact that they are first gen, to embrace that identity, to have pride in it, to not be ashamed of it, to share their narratives, don't feel like there's a stick associated with it, and really step into and embrace that identity and embrace the fact that you're first gen and everything that that means and realize that you are overcoming incredible odds at every stage of your life to get to where you are. And even when that struggle happens and where you might have those pitfalls or or things that don't go well, you're able to be resilient, you're able to get back up and keep going because you're your first trend, because you're so strong, because of that identity and everything that comes with it. And I really want people to embrace that. And even in this moment that we're in with the global pandemic and COVID-19, you know, we're best equipped to be able to navigate all of this and and to do to do well as we move forward. So I really want to leave people with that sentiment of really embracing being first gen, embracing the fact that they are best equipped to deal with the challenges that come come along in life. There are many of them that come through for us, but we're able to overcome better than anyone. And so that's something to be proud of. That's something to not be ashamed of. That's something to to really, you know, sit with and, and embrace and share with the world. So mm, you make me proud. And, you know, those who are under your leadership, they should be so, so proud. And so, I mean, just feel so fortunate that they have you as their leader. Chris, you are a great person and your vision, your drive, your, your passion for what you do is next to none. And I am very, very grateful that we ever crossed paths. And I look forward to seeing how this thing flourishes, how it, you know, just picks up like wildfire, which it's doing, right? And I and I look forward to, yeah. since you're going to all the conferences, <laughs> I look forward to the Flip National <laughs> Conference one of these days. <laughs> so, you know, um, just going to speak. It's going to put it out there. Yeah. But it, it, Chris, thank you. And for those of you who are listening who are currently undergraduate students I and mean, even grad students that want to get involved we you know the information to get in touch with Chris and his team will be in the show notes so go check out those show notes and Chris again just thank you for who you are and what you do and continue to be all that you are because the world needs you and what you have to offer I appreciate that those are very kind words and I, I'm really really excited to be here so thank you for having me you're so very welcome <laughs>